In a time where we are overloaded with information at a pace that seems impossible to keep up with, we can feel overwhelmed and it's hard to know where we stand in this world, what we should strive for, what's real. I believe there's great power in sharing truth, vulnerability and authenticity. And in my line of work, I've had the privilege of connecting with exceptional human beings who have achieved some pretty magnificent things. Some have been lucky, but most have experienced adversity and pain, yet have found a way to triumph in their actions with some great stories, humor and wisdom along the way. I want to share the love, knowledge and the stories that have inspired me straight from the source. My name is Sharon Joel and I'm an entertainer and storyteller. I'm here to serve you what's real, the people and their stories. These are the real ones. She is an Academy Award nominee, Golden Globe winner and multiple time nominee, Emmy Award nominee, SAG Award twice winner and multiple time nominee, Actor Award twice winner and multiple time nominee, Helpman Award winner and member of the Order of Australia. As if that wasn't enough, she's also an outspoken and courageous advocate for, but not limited to, human rights, Indigenous rights, the Me Too movement, feminism, pay gender and equality, women and children against trafficking, marriage equality, representation and diversity on screen. This, my friends, is Rachel Griffiths. Rachel, uh, your achievements obviously speak for themselves. You've got an illustrious and elaborate career, but on a personal note, why I'm so honoured to have you on today is that I feel that you are an incredible example of a human being, of someone who's not only achieved the greatest of heights in your chosen field after painstakingly carving out a career um, and experiencing the triumph and adversity associated with that, but also you yourself give your total and generous self back to my community, which is the actor community, but also the Australian community at large. And whether that be in standing up for us, advocating for us, or putting in your hard-earned money experience advice into new creative work uh, for this industry, that is a big reason as to why I am so incredibly in debt to you. So thank you, Rachel, for coming on. I really appreciate you being here. Um, look, I think it's so. I think it's so wonderful what you're doing, and um, you, you know, I think actors are incredibly well positioned actually um, to be having these conversations because, you know, as you know, we have, you know, when we're working, we exist in a very kind of human and playful space, you know, as we move from our, you know, set chairs into our pretending and. Um, you know, certainly before the ad advent of phones, you know, we actors on sets would, all, you know, we'd be talking about, you know, everything from, you know, very intimate and shared stories to, you know, stories of people we might have worked with, um, you know, over generations. So I've been on sets where somebody's telling a story that was told to them by an older actor who was in, you know, a film with Laurence Olivier. You know, we pass those kind of stories along and, um, and I think also as we are so, um, you know, we're students, aren't we, really, of human nature. And um, there's kind of no conversation about character or motivation or feeling that we find too trivial to have. Um, so I think we're really well positioned to, um, 
you know, to be having chats and uh, and sharing those skills that, you know, you just identify that you yourself have that come out of the fact that we have quite deep conversations, you know, all the time. And then also yeah. incredibly stupid, hilarious, you know, <laughs> absurd, the what ifs, you know, because that's kind of what we do. We oscillate between, you know, having to depict human absurdity and uh, shallowness. Um, but then also, you know, really big moments. Um, absolutely, absolutely, and they're real. And I think you're exactly right. Oscillating, but between the two, make us real. And I always feel like we're always operating at a level of vulnerability all the time as actors. And so um, we're always thinking about those. And I know, I know, I, I'm always falling into the trap of getting into the DMs very quickly. And I can understand how for some people it's just too deep, too hard. But I can't really see any other way but then talking about things honestly or deeply or in a complex mm. way so um i i personally gain a lot of value out of that and you're right i think that storytelling um intergenerational storytelling and community stuff i mean it's happened i'm of indian heritage and it's such a big part of my culture and identity that i love that the actor space also has its own subculture with of that as well what i really love about you is um who you represent as a person and all of that sort of stuff that goes behind that because obviously on a piece of paper you are the bee's knees but it's everything else that you do and the choices that you make in your everyday life that really really trigger me to be a better version of myself so tell me how you are going in quarantine and ISO so you're in Melbourne at the moment is that right I'm in Melbourne and ISO um you know, look, I'm in an incredibly privileged position um you know echoing what uh, Hugo Weaving was saying last week um I just finished, you know, an absolutely massive two years bringing um, Ride Like a Girl to our screens Mm. big and bringing total control to our screens small. And I just finished on the 6th of March in the US um, a 10-part Amazon show in which I'm just acting. Um, So, you know, I'm kind of doing the things that I always do at the end of you know, a big project. I get very homey and kind of try to find my way around the kitchen because I haven't really cooked for two years. And, um, you know, it's always a little bit tricky as, as I move into the kitchen and my husband's like, what are you doing what in are you here? Doing? You don't belong here. Um, and just, um, yeah, being a real homebody. Um, so I've gotten into the garden. Um, just set, uh, spent a bit of time setting up the house you know, for zones, we're very lucky that I um, hate open plan living, which I think is, you know, the great architectural uh, fascist uh, togetherness that's been inflicted on us. Um, the idea mm-hmm. that we want to hear the television when we're cooking or we want to hear the dishes when we're yeah. watching television. Um, so our house yeah. is quite well designed with rooms that close. Um so, yeah, there's been a bit of juggling. My husband had to give up a bit of real estate, unfortunately, um, okay. for his studio. So, dreaming <laughs> up projects. Uh, yesterday, we did um, chemistry uh, experiments in the laundry, which was exciting. We've done uh, matching tie-dye uh, trackies and thingies for the girls. We did the other, the other day and... Uh, and uh, we took some of my husband's favourite white Calvin Kleins and fully tie-dyed them. 
uh, and then pop them in his drawer to surprise him. So that was pretty funny. Oh, I love that. It's an inside joke with the kids. It really what, is. Wonderful thing to go. I wish I was there for the reaction. So you've got three kids. Um, you're saying Banjo's 16, yeah. is that right? Yeah, he's doing your Adelaide, Adelaide. And Clem, yeah, exactly, and Clem. So they're homeschooling but obviously at different ages. So how is it, because obviously I don't have any kids, but what is it really like? Like are you kind of a supervisor or are you actually playing an active role in their learning? What's actually happening in oh, schooling at the moment? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm like helping with long division and I could do one number into two but I could not do the three numbers. <laughs> So, no, I'm absolutely incapable of, you know, of communicating any basic skills to the children. I'm good at um, the older ones' essays, um, kind of helping them extrapolate their ideas and formulate. That's probably the only value I have, really. So if my daughter's struggling with long division, I go in all confident and then I try to do it and then I'm going, let's watch a YouTube video and then I'm Googling, you know, maths guru, grade five. <laughs> and then my daughter's like, we don't learn that method. And I'm like, all right. Then. I mean, I it still baffles me. I'm like, I've never used long division outside of what I learned at school in my lifetime ever. It's never, never, ever been a thing. But I suppose it's just one of those things that you have to learn at school. So that must be lovely. Like I, I understand when, when you're talking about you have a project at a time, that talks to your, I suppose, process as well. I really like the idea of coming back home, homing in. So do you, I suppose you're at a point in your career, and we'll talk about how you got to this point in your career, but where you can pick and choose the projects potentially that come your way or are you still kind of someone who takes on anything that is of meaning to yourself whether that be back-to-back projects or resulting in a back-to-back project which means that you're going to be I suppose exhausted by the end of the year or whatever oh look I think there's no magic formula I mean, I'm, I'm still a whore if the money's big enough and the time away from my family is <laughs> in proportion to the amount of money on the table you know I I, uh, you know, am the primary, um, you know, economic provider for five people. So, you know, I still make sound financial decisions. Having said that, you know, I turned down, you know, disgusting amounts of money for shows that I just, uh, you know, would do a Mandy Patinkin on, which, you know, he famously kind of walked away from one of those, I think, CSIs or NCISs and there was just another girl on a slab and he just burst into tears and said, I can't do this anymore. And off he walked yeah. into the sunset or into our fabulous screens on um, Homeland. So, look, there are some, you know, there's a line crossed. But I, I'm relatively sensible. But um, more recently, I just think I've had... You know, found the courage finally to um, commit to trying to bring stories to the screen that excite me and have come kind of either from the wellspring of my own, you know, heart, mind and soul or, you know, the nuclear fission that happens, you know, meeting another person and you go, oh. So um, I am kind of probably most excited about that at the moment not so much the ideas that just I have but come out of a kind of connecting with another storyteller who you know we've got common ground with but also maybe have some crazy edges so um, I'm currently developing a show or a series of new works 
with um, Madeline Dyer, who was my um, director's attachment on Ride Like a Girl, and she's a feisty, oh, gorgeous, um, young, spiky, funny, goofball, brilliant creator. Um, and we've just cooked up a show called Saving Gary Sweet, um, starring Gary, right. starring Gary <laughs> Sweet in an alternate universe where Gary is a man of a certain age whose entire life and career are, are brought down around him when a viral video of him bagging his Gold Coast procedural show called The Dunes and doing coke with an underage girl by three months. Uh, goes viral and brings down his entire life. Um, and it's a <laughs> kind of gorgeous human, uh, you know, kind of look in a post-Me Too with a much more, I think, complicated view of the reckoning that um, men of a certain generation are facing in conversations around PC-ness and consent. Um, he has a Down syndrome son, a trans daughter, four ex-wives. Um, wow. His best mate <laughs> with uh, Eddie McGuire. Eddie doesn't know this yet. Um, and it's just this kind of wild romp where there's enough of it that's true um, and it really uh, is going to kind of celebrate the kind of talent and depth and intelligence that an actor that Gary has that I don't think has ever really been harnessed here. Explored. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds incredible. And, you know, it doesn't <clears throat> surprise me that you've got people um, like you've just mentioned now because you really talk about representing and equal representation, I suppose, on screen and you're a massive advocate for that as well um was this story that you've come up with was this like something that you got because did you create this story as well or are you directing this are you how what's your involvement in this project uh yes yeah, so I had this idea it came out of a series of dreams I had a very long time ago where wow I would <laughs> dream that I was trying to save Ben Affleck and they were always the same. And it was when Ben Affleck was in his kind of gold Bentley yeah. and like fur coats and bullying. The J-Lo days. The J-Lo yeah, days. Was gambling. And, yeah. and I would just have these dreams where I'm like, Ben, this isn't who you are. This isn't, this isn't the best Ben Affleck you can be. It's not heading up. Like, who do you want to be, man? Um and I would wake up in the morning and I just go, oh, my God, I had another one of those dreams. And uh, so we called them Saving Ben Affleck dreams. And then when Ben um, grew out of his J-Lo phase uh, and Russell, start, you know, had the incident where he threw a phone at someone in a hotel, I suddenly was having these Saving Russell Crowe dreams. <laughs> and it was always kind of curious to me that... Uh, that I was trying to say <laughs> these men that I felt were in some kind of personal public identity crisis and I knew were yeah. good men, you know, at their heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I came home to do house husbands and I had done a very early job with Gary and, you know, was, he's an incredibly charismatic, entertaining man that, you know, has gotten away with a lot of naughty mm -hmm. behaviour because he's kind of a rogue and he's a really yeah. good guy. Um, and it just came to me on the set of House Husbands. I was like, I want to do a show. I want to do a show with Gary. 
anyway, it was really funny. I got this message out of the blue from Gary um, about a month ago. And he's like, whatever happened to that show, gave it, you know, Saving Gary Sweet? And I said, well, funny, I've just done the six-episode breakdown with Maddie and I'll send it to you. Um, and I, I, I So he just, was on board from the beginning? He loved it. You know, he's a star, you know. He's, he's a star of his and, own show. Like, could Exactly. And he's a complicated, gorgeous, intelligent, you know, mm. man who has to reckon with some really deep ideas. But it was interesting that I had that idea before the kind of Me Too and before I think yeah. we had come to some exhaustion about this, you know, peak public shaming because it's as much about the troll fest and... You know, absolutely, and 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 that's very beautiful word that you said about you know acknowledging our vulnerabilities and you know the crisis in you know male male toxic environments, if you like, is is a lack of uh, there being space for men to be vulnerable, and I think absolutely, and then that makes them so vulnerable. Yeah. No, I, I recall, um, I mean, you've been, you're such an outspoken human being in the most positive way I say that because it actually gives other people the courage to, and I think you use your platform so incredibly well. Um, obviously, I mean, we talk about privilege and stuff. You're in a position where you've you've done so incredibly well. We all know you, we love you. Your work speaks for itself. So hopefully that means you'll always have an opportunity to be employed. So maybe the risk isn't as great as it would be to a, a someone who's kind of emerging and got, coming up and through, or maybe that's not the case. But the fact is by you, by the virtue of you actually doing that yourself, you do encourage other people to do the same. And I always take a leaf out of your book when I think about things and I want to I say something and I hesitate. I'm like, oh, but what would the backlash be? Of course, I think things through wholeheartedly. And I think um, academically, I think about all of what I'm saying before I put it out and that's probably a good thing but I don't hesitate anymore um I remember well, when you I, talked about the my yeah sorry no, 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 I, okay. I, I just I think what you you know are touching on is I think um you know female actors particularly I think have you know had a very kind of unique journey to find their voices and at different times in history if you you know, Mae West was basically shut down by the, um, and she was one of the most outspoken women calling out men in the business back in the, you know, 20s. And she was basically shut down by the Hayes Conduct Code. Um, and then um, women who were outspoken in the 60s really did get major backlash. Um, you have a woman like, you know, Jane Fonda, who's, probably one of the most successful female producers of all time. And yet that's not the story that was ever led with. You know, it was, no. um, you know, it was the focus was always on being a mouthy woman and, um, you know, uh, her anti-war stuff really, uh, I think, probably profoundly hurt our career. So I think we're put back in our box a lot and have been over history and, I'm mm. sure that is even more true uh, for women of diverse backgrounds. Um, and I'm yeah. sure you'd know that yourself. If my opportunities had been this, if I were Indian yeah. or Aboriginal or, um, you know, it's part, part of my passion around um, black bitch or total control was mm. that Deb Mailman had never been a lead in an Australian television yeah. show. 
and she is, Incredible. you know, our one of our inarguable, our most loved and greatest talents. And no one had ever conceived, you know, a show for her. Um, so I'm sure if you are a woman of colour um, or from a non-Anglo background, one has felt one's opportunities are even smaller. And of course, the risks that uh, you take have to be extremely measured because, you know, it's it's like the needle, you know, I've got the needle, but you've yeah. got to get through the eye of the needle. Um, but there are times, I think, and it, it hasn't happened, um, you know, too many times over my career. Sorry, somebody's bothering me. Um, <laughs> and I'll speak to two things. I was called by the New York Times uh, very early in the Harvey Weinstein investigative case. And um, I remember getting the message from the journalist on my um, cell phone and I felt sick. Yeah. And at that point, my career was not, I wasn't in the confident place that I am now, I think. Yeah. And I didn't call her back. And I had um, stories of several people very close to me. Um, part of it was I felt it wasn't necessarily my story, but I had very useful information. And I also had stories from um, arriving in America uh, for the first time with Muriel's wedding. And Tony and I had been quite, you know, actually young and naive. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were taken aside by a woman quite high up at Miramax and she said to us, don't ever be in a room alone with Harvey, ever. And that was mm -hmm. one of our first things. But, um, you know, I feel great shame at that moment that I, um, I was afraid, you know. I was afraid of this very powerful man. I didn't think they'd get him. I did not think mm -hmm. he would be held to account. And I was afraid of, um, I think all that, all that lifetime of fear of the things that we as women in our industry have felt we, we've had to be okay with or find a way to, you know, push back. Um, and I couldn't. So, you know, thank mm -hmm. you for, you know, celebrating how fabulous and outspoken I am but you know that was the moment where I felt it was at risk and I didn't um have the balls to do it so it, there, there you go um and then at other times you know I took my clothes off at the casino and I was actually I know you did and that was a great <laughs> risk actually because I think at the time the casino was owned by the same person that owned you know half the women's magazines and uh, some of our newspapers. So um, I did yep. feel that that may, uh, you know, have a long-term impact. But one moment I had courage and audacity and the other I had fear. So, you know, mm. none of us are perfect. Yeah, you are a real and true human being, but I have to honestly commend you for sharing that because um, shame is hard to to talk about things associated with shame and embarrassment um and for you to admit that like 
anyone could understand, anyone with half a heart or empathy could understand the position you were in. You'd worked so hard to get to a point after Muriel's wedding, I suppose, is arguably your breakthrough role. You've worked so hard to get to a certain point in your career. And then, yeah, it could be risk to be taken all away. Um, and I thank you for also acknowledging my diverse background as well, because um it's it's interesting. There are things that you hear, things that are said around you, things that are scripted for you, you know, that are racist or um, other things like that. And then you have to kind of be the person that has to be like, hey, actually, I'm not okay with this at a risk of being hard work or problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And 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 then what I found, and with shame, I say this is as well, is I I, I choose and pick my battles mm-hmm. now because mm-hmm. it is exhausting consistently mm-hmm. and continually. Mm-hmm fighting that fight um, and advocating and all of that, even though it's within me, but it is exhausting to do that as well. And you're right, it's at a, acting is not a job where we can always create our own work. Mm. We are at, we are beholden to the creators and the decision makers and the people in power. And in Australia specifically, um, we're a, bit, a little bit behind when it comes to representation on screen. Um, I really loved when you talked about the Me Too moment, moment as well and, and that whole when it all happened was um, you said, yes, it is happening in our industry. Of course it's happening in our industry, but our industry is, you said something along the lines of this is my interpretation, but it's a re- reflection of society and the community at large. This is happening everywhere. Um, th- this Me Too stuff is happening everywhere and uh, obviously this is my industry and, I, and I've seen it happen and it's all kind of coming out now, but it takes a few strong women, a few conversations, different um the situation could have been different for you had that woman not have warned you and taken that opportunity to say don't get in a room your situation could have been different as well so you've been having this conversation now I'm sure will affect someone else and pay it forward in a different way so thank you um let's talk about let it, let's talk about how you got to that point as well so it was funny. I read an article the other day, and they were saying something like, "Um, NIDA, NIDA reject." Is that oh, right? Did yes. you audition? <laughs> and then look at you now. I, I love, know. I love that because for the people that don't know, for the audience that don't know, um, National Institute of Dramatic Arts is like the place, I suppose, when we're as actors, kind of growing up to get into it's very difficult to do it there's a, a lot of stuff that goes behind it sometimes you have to audition a couple of times but it's almost like there is a little bit of a subculture where if you go to NIDA or WAPA or whatever it is you're a true actor and if you don't do that then you're not um, and I found that very interesting because I hadn't even thought about it. I'm not that person that's like what school did you go to or whatever I don't really give a shit but it was interesting that you've literally you are probably one of the top whatever five Australian homegrown talents that have I mean, I, I'm not even going to waste your time talking about all the accolades you've won and have been nominated for now, but you got there and you didn't make it into NIDA? Yeah. Look, <laughs> I think it turned out actually to be, um, you know, the best. And I didn't get in twice, by the way. Um, wow. The... You know, the thing I think that getting into somewhere like NIDA or VCA does as a young actor, you know, if you haven't grown up with an infallible confidence in your own fabulousness, you know, if you didn't have parents going, I think you're extraordinary and follow your dreams and, um, you know, um, having 
that confidence then if you get in it, it allows a little dream to go oh you know I'm not deluded maybe you know someone else yeah. sees my value well that didn't happen for me um mm -hmm. so it just uh it just meant I had to you know work harder I think to yeah. you know find my own path and um I think in some ways it would have been the worst possible thing for me because I think my own doubt about myself uh, my own lack of confidence I had both kind of confident but also terrified that it, that confidence was utterly misplaced um, yeah. and I think I would have given um, my teachers in an environment like that far too much power um, and having a lot of friends you know let's go back to the me too thing having a lot of friends mm. who were at VCA um, and at NIDA at the time, I think there was just appalling abuse of power in those institutions. Yeah. There was uh, constant relationships between teachers, tutors and students. They had the ability to kick you out, despite the fact you, yeah. you, know, you were text paying, for really no reason that you could... So you were always had your, 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 the terror of, of being able to be cold, you know, that was part of their power. Um, and, uh, and I think there was uh, as much to the young boy, younger men, pressure uh, and a kind of a, a weird uh, atmosphere of uh, transgression. Um, mm -hmm. And I know from a number of boys that they had to do that dance with um, gay men who were abusing their power in that situation and were not behaving um, with opacity and, and, and in an ethical way. So it's all it's that the Me Too thing, as we are seeing, is not just about women. It's actually just about power. Abuse of power, absolutely, yeah. and you fight that, and I know you fight that in all different ways um, within your work and outside of it as well. Uh, when you, I suppose, I really thought that was interesting what you said about because I kind of grew up, I don't know if it's similar to the way you did, but I wasn't encouraged at all to pursue any sort of uh, career in the arts or, um, and I never was told. It's not like I was told I wasn't good enough. I just wasn't encouraged the other way. So I didn't have that level of confidence. All the mm. confidence that I have now has literally come from within myself mm. and I've had to really search from for that and I define myself by my actions and my behaviour. I really try not to have it through validation of others but I did obviously go through that period where mm. I was seeking that, mm. especially in your you know early 20s and stuff and I suppose in a way, I kind of took the easy route, even though it doesn't seem like it, by becoming, you know, a litigation lawyer because that's kind of, a, it's a job like any other job. You put in uh, many other jobs. You put in effort, you get a result. So, yep, okay, I'm good at this mm -hmm. because I've got a job, I'm employed or whatever, whereas acting, there's so so much subjectivity. There's mm -hmm. so much I don't know and you just want people to say you're good. And then obviously mm -hmm. as well, you want to be booked for jobs. And so when you're not... Uh, you don't think it's because you're brown. You think it's because you're not good enough. Because if I was good enough, they would find a role for me or put mm. me in somewhere else as well. Mm. So it's interesting you talk about that because I think I read somewhere that you really felt like you kind of got into your groove when you were 26. Is that right? 
around about that. You, you went to a community theatre group in Geelong. Yeah, that was straight off out of um, the teacher's college that I um, went to. So I did a drama design and dance triple major with a teaching backup coming from Amazing. a family of teachers. Yeah, there teaching. you go. There's yeah, backup. there's my backup. Yep. Um, <laughs> but also it turned out to be a wonderful course for me because, uh, you know, so much of what I'm coming back to now as a content creator was the mentality of that school. It wasn't, you know, your agent will call and offer you a property, you know, that it was just mm. like coming up with ideas and gigs and hustles, you know, with what's your side hustle. Right. Uh, yeah. And then for some teaching as a side hustle for the other thing. And, you know, many of them have also, you know, been teachers and they, you know, they act and coach and do all this other stuff on the side, you know, within the storytelling art. Um, so, yeah, I came out of uh, two years working with young people, um, you know, keeping year, holding the attention of year nine boys was probably one of the biggest teachers I have ever had, really. Um, don't be boring. Um, you know, you have to be a dynamic, percussive, truthful, you know, you have to find authenticity or they, you know, they, uh, they sniff it out. So... I, every time I performed, um, yeah, for the United Boys, I'm, I'm going to make these little fuckers cry, you know, um, and that's what that's what I try to do. So I came out of that as a very muscular actor, and I think um, mm -hmm. I was very lucky to have an extraordinary company, um, Bruce Gladwin, mm -hmm. who runs Back to Back Theatre Company, which is Australia's uh, most successful touring company. They work with actors with intellectual disabilities. Uh, and professional actors coming up with groundbreaking, mind-boggling ideas and um, shows. Uh, and, um, of course, Genevieve Morris, who I cast in Ride Like a Girl, and Rose Myers, who is now head of one of the top uh, Australian young people company um, called Windmill Theatre, that she came from a know-your-audience Um you must know who you're making work for. So if we were making a show for preps and ones, we would, you know, constantly get a little grade of preps and ones in and try different ideas and see if they laughed or didn't laugh or what engaged them. And um, and I, as I've come to make content, you know, I do that with that same passion for an audience. And I think, you know, we as actors mm. are not so up our own assholes that we want to do a one-woman show with one person in them. In the house, some 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 are mostly. No, are, yeah, no, but, yeah. it's our worst nightmare. No one's there. Yeah. No one's you know, the sound of one hand clapping. Like we are, you know, I mean, we are people pleasers. So when we come Absolutely. to make content, we are, you know, we're reaching. We wanted to hit home. We wanted yeah. to hit home. We want to make. We want to hear the laughs. We're whores. We want to hear the laughs. We want yeah. to clap. You know, we want a big communal experience. And yeah. so when we are coming up with television shows, I just, I think actors are at the coal face of an audience with that sensitivity. Um, yeah. And I think that is our superpower and maybe our weakness that we can, yes. you know, be a bit too people pleasing sometimes and, um, you know, not, not do those really tough performances that audiences actually really love, but you've got to be really brave to do. I was watching the race and five minutes after I said, I'm going to make that film. It's going to be called Ride Like a Girl. 
and it's a PG feminist sports film that'll make them cry. So nobody came to me with that idea. That that was mm-hmm. my re- my it. response to an extraordinary moment of history where I was just so inspired by Michelle and what she achieved and her family story and and Stevie that I just. Yes, I was like, this is the great unmade Australian sports film. And it uh, it's the ultimate outsider because, um, you know, they she's the quintessential Aussie battler because she's a chick. So, because um, we don't like how sporting heroes, like, I will win the Olympics and then mm. they win the Olympics. You know, we don't, yeah. we don't like a great heroic Story, the way the Americans No, we like do. our cool runnings. We like <laughs> exactly. Those They've got to kind of come yes. from Eddie the Eagle, I think. A uh, story. With, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the fact that she was female, that her brother has Down syndrome, that she's yeah. lost her mother, was from you know a family of regional Aussie Catholic battlers. I felt would be um, you know all the secret ingredients. So you can, that doesn't kind of happen in your head. It's just like. Just, I, I just hadn't been so taken by a story and inspired by something, for, you know, for a long time. And it just, it's just like one minute you're, you're, one minute you're this, just life's cruising along and then just all these light bulbs are going off, you know, like yeah. neon signs and, and it doesn't go away. Some ideas bubble up like that and then they just die. And it was like, what happened to that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I got bored with that one. Nah, maybe revisit another time. But yeah, for right now, it's dead. Have you always been like that? Has that always been your active mind? Like even now, you were saying when we were speaking on the phone the other day, you were saying, "Oh, I'm just formulating all the, uh, these ideas. I'm being very creative while I'm at home." And a lot of it is within the mind. I'm sure you put it down to paper at some point. But have you always been that way? I've always been excitable, you know, um, okay. and I've always been curious. I'm not necessarily yeah. excited by things that other people are excited about <laughs> and I think you know that thing about coming into my own you know in my late 20s is I just would sit in groups of girls at 14 and they're all talking about so and so and oh my god I've got a crush on so and so I can't get my nails yeah. to grow and and I yeah. just sit there going give me a gun you know what yeah. why <laughs> why can't I it, even pretend that this is interesting. So, uh, you know, I just, I think I always hoped that when I got got to university, I'd find other people that also, maybe I'm on a spectrum or something, you know, I just, I can get excited and spend days Googling down, you know, really weird episodes of history. Like, did the Ukrainians really eat their children during the Great Famine of Stalin, <laughs> you know? And then I'll go on to the Armenian Genocide. And then for two days, I'm just, oh, my God. And, of course, this was the setup, and this allowed Hitler to do that. So I just do get really, really passionately into something from completely out of the blue. So what got me on my violin was somebody sent me a video of two Italian boys playing Coldplay in lockdown. Right. Right. And literally. To the community? No, they were just in their room. They were were just in their apartment, these twins playing Coldplay. And I just went from 
you know, dooby 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 doo to I'm going to play the violin. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to be amazing at it. <laughs> no, it's a lot of work. But um, what I am finding really interesting is it's a, it's a great way for the unemployed actor to maintain mm-hmm. a kind of performance interrogation craft and Mm -hmm. um you know that thing about how acting is a balance between the notes that you have intention to play and also being open to what's coming at you from from the other actors yeah and you know there are some actors that just doesn't matter what you do like Johnny Depp doesn't matter what I do he's just gonna do the same thing He's going to do the thing that he wants to do. He's going to do the thing to the point that he'll wear like an earpiece and he'll be listening to something, you know, and it makes him extraordinary. But he comes with this creature, you know, that he's going to force onto the screen. Um, And then there are actors, you know, who I love, like a Mandy Patinkin, going back to Mandy, who is both doing these extraordinary, delicate things, but you know that if Claire did something... Completely unexpected, he would respond to that in a way that was utterly present. Um, yeah. So music is, is that, isn't it? Because you are, have to be both listening and mm-hmm. playing. Um, so it's, it's, I'm finding it really bizarre. Like I wake up at three in the morning and, you know, some grade one piece. <laughs> You know, and so it's not very sophisticated music. It's partly I've got all these earworms. Um, But it's that's been quite wonderful uh, to have a discipline in in quarantine. So thank you, little Italian. Something to excite you. No, but something. Yeah, exactly. And something to excite you while you're going. But it's it's lovely. I mean, I I'm all about celebrating uniqueness. You you can call it whatever you want. But these things that make you you obviously come throughout in your performance as well, in your work, in other ways, and within your family as well. I mean, your family would. I undoubtedly be be used to you being like that as well and probably inspired by that. They are a bit used to me just going, they're like, why is mum playing the violin? It's just mum. Why is (laughs) mum doing the, what's she doing (laughs) in the garage? Um, But going back to that, I think, you know, so many terrible things that obviously corona has disrupted Mm. our lives in in ways and many people you know will be vulnerable for a very long time one of the lights for me has been ordinary people making content whether they're the tiktok videos or with their families whether it's the family that sung the lame is song i don't know it's one of my all-time favorites that this so great amateur family um (laughs) you know, from a black guy that option B, D. Um, and yeah. we've been playing the butthole song quite a bit in the last week. Is that that little girl that sings yeah. a song about the butthole? But, you know, <laughs> like the Cure have done a cover of her butthole No song. way. No what I, way. It's so, it's so beautiful and it's all in the phrase, all inside my butthole. Yeah. If she just went inside my butthole, <laughs> that song wouldn't be great. Like, she's a really interesting <laughs> lyricist. So I've been loving digesting a mix of yeah. absolutely amateur content. Um, yeah. And I think we've embraced, you know, 
at the absurdity of <laughs> life. And I think in these moments of great shock, uh, like World War One created Dada, um, you know, some of some out of times where we are all co- coasting along thinking, you know, we're human, we can fix everything, we've got a solution for everything, we're not vulnerable, I'm rich, I'm not vulnerable. We have been reminded of that human vulnerability. Um, and there's something deeply absurd about the reckoning of that, that, yeah. you know, is a really interesting, you know, history repeats and yet we forget, yeah. you know. Every every hundred years or so, um, I totally hear. I think there's something incredible about the fact that we're all going through this together as one. And can I can I just say has... I've got to stop saying this. I've been saying that we are in this together, but mm-hmm. the truth is we're actually not in this together. And I think we as artists have to stop saying that because I think it's a lie. Um, I think artists are afraid to say how much they're being left behind, that they've been thrown out of yes. the bus, that the solutions in this country, I do think the government is doing a fantastic yes. job compared to the world, and I must preface that, but it has been revealed that there are two mm-hmm. classes of people and yep. there are people who have jobs that are not casual or contract and the others, and for the courage of the sole trader, the courage of artists, young people are much more likely to be casual workers. Uh, we're not in this together. We're just not. Yeah. Um, all right, I've got a lot of fat I can get by, but, you know, artists are the most generous people, actors are the most generous people during the fires. You know, you've got comedians raising millions and millions and millions of dollars. I think what's happening now is uh, they, because we're empaths, you know, we don't Mm. want to whine and we don't want to say we're having it hard Mm. because we can see what our health workers, but actually, you know, our our art sector right now is uh, is in is in terrible terrible danger of never recover. Never recovering, and yep. um, and you and and we've been you know we've been doubly hit. You know, so many actors are working as waiters. Well, guess what? Neither you know neither job. So those hospitality mm-hmm. and tourism jobs that are our backup, you know, that got me through my twenties, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. we can't do either. And there is no mm-hmm. lifeline. So we're not in it together until mm-hmm. we agree as a society that we should be in it together, that we should exactly. bear the cost of it equally. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I de- and I think that goes to also placing value upon our work as a community as well as ourselves playing, placing value upon our work as what we do and how we contribute to in society. Um, when, before when I sent in this together, I meant to say in terms of the absurdity, the note about yeah. absurdity, absurdity you said before, this is just the one time I suppose in, in my lifetime and probably in my whole lifetime where we actually are experiencing this pandemic together um, all over the world. Mm. 
as 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 whether we wanted to be united on that front mm. or not. But I mm. completely agree with you. Mm. Um, and I was going to ask you about it, no, it was about the a, Australian it, arts. It was just a thought I had this morning because I've been saying that, you know, on my yeah. Insta, we're in this together. Yeah. And I just woke up this morning. I said, I'm not going to, I'm actually not going to lie. Mm. You know, I think w- it, it, we as Australia, I think we still have a desire to be a fair society and what's happening right now for, you know, seasonal contract workers, young workers, um, arts workers, sole traders, that the solutions have not been fair. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think there are people who uh, would take perhaps a bit of a hit in order to have how the help is being distributed to be distributed more fairly. You know, none of us have brought this on ourselves, but, you know, who knows when theatres and galleries and, um, you know, lives for us will go on. And we will come back and we're making amazing content, dreaming amazing stuff. Um, yeah. You know, the world is watching the content we made before we lost our jobs. Um, yeah. And we must remember that uh, we shouldn't be, you know, we as artists should not be, uh, the mo- you know, right up there with the most vulnerable people in Australia because we already are and we're, we're very courageous to take the risks we take because we're not in it for the money. But mm-hmm. everyone I know has lost their side hustle as well as their main. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And we are very important to the Australian culture. Could you speak and to And we're important to the Australian economy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What do you can you can you tell me what you think um perhaps your perspective on Australian content per se and how it shapes our culture or what you think because you've obviously put your money behind you as well because you're creating content and stuff in Australia as well and productions and employing people throughout what you do, what you produce, what you direct. How important was it for you to come back to Australia after achieving such great success in, I suppose, the Beholden land or whatever you want to call it, Hollywood, Mm. which we'll talk about in a minute, and coming back and doing that? Why did you do that? Um, you know, it wasn't to perform a service, you know, it wasn't like, I've achieved this, I shall come back and, you know, <laughs> tell Australian stories because you've all been lost without me. Um, no, I, I just think the truth is I could not find my voice as a storyteller in a foreign country. Um, you know, I really admire the Australians who have done so um, and have made content, uh, you know, intellectually and, and, and found, um, you know, people like Joel Edgerton and Rebel Wilson, you know, they've been able to just find that confidence in that, you know, big, much more aggressive hyperculture. I just, I think I just had to come home to, to you know, root myself um, yeah. in in, in this earth because, uh, I don't know, that's just who I am, you know. Yeah, yeah. You Well, you did the job of telling other people, I mean, that's what you do, other people's stories incredibly well. Um, what was 
was the LA dream or how, cause I'm speaking from an actor mm. perspective here. It's always a thing of like, got to, even if you come back to Australia, it's almost like, just got to like have a bit of success in LA or the UK or whatever. Was that always on the cards or did you just kind of follow the success of Muriel's wedding or your, your first breakthrough? Um, well, I, I worked after Muriel's wedding, I worked mainly, mainly in the UK, which I absolutely loved. Um, great friendships, wonderful projects, um, just absolutely loved it. And I think, you know, in my, you know, teenage years, I, I would have thought, you know, I'd be more likely to have a British career, I think, because of that, that kind of quirky, um, you know, and, and just, the, you know, my love of theatre. So, um I never really identified, I think, with American culture. I didn't grow up with a whole lot of pop culture um, in my household. So it was weird. I just kind of hit my wall in the UK. It was a, you know, wonderful, heady times, the kind of late 90s. There was a lot of sex, a lot of drugs, a lot of rock and roll. Um, the city, you know, was awash with cocaine and everybody was, doing it at 11 in the morning. Nobody exercised. Wow. Everybody met at the pub. And I just had started to feel that kind of very, just really unhealthy. Um, right. and, uh, and, and a long way from home, you know, in those dark winters. And I came home mm. to Sydney one, um, you know, one early summer. And I just was like, oh, this is the greatest place on earth. Why would you... Um, live anywhere else and I went for a surf and saw the dawn and I was just like oh my god this is this this is what I need so I came back for a few years then um, America wasn't something I was really looking at again it was just a response to the to the content um, I was already a successful you know international actor uh, and got sent a pilot and it was Alan Ball whose American Beauty was my favourite film of the previous year. I couldn't believe that he was moving into television. Um, and it was just the most wonderful thing I'd ever read. So it was the content that took me there. Um, and what was a revelation was how much I enjoyed it, how, how incredibly satisfying it was working on one show for five years. And, I mean, you would know this from your show. You become yeah. a family. And when you yeah. just do films, it's, you know, you get so close and then you break up and then you do enough. You know, it's quite fracturing yeah. and um, there is something. Emotionally jarring. And there's something wonderful about walk, walking into the green room that's your green room, you know, hanging with yeah. those same people. And I think your acting gets better the longer you know the actors you're working with. You take risks with yeah. each other, I think. That's exactly right. You establish that safety um, in that in that space, I suppose. But brothers and sisters, how long were you on that for? So both shows I did for five years. Right. I that is incredible. And it, it, like, that was, I have to say, that was my favourite show, um, Brothers and Sisters. I just really resonated with it and I just thought it was just so, at that time when it came out, it was just like this could be any family. It was great. How did you do, now this is a logistical question as a woman, how did you manage the whole relationship, having kids, doing all that? How did you decide? Or was this an ongoing conversation with your husband? Because you guys have been married for, what, 18 years about that? Mm. 
nearly 20 years. Yeah. Did you guys take this journey together and just have that conversation? I know before you mentioned you, you're the uh, main economic provider in your household. Was it just a matter of discussing together as a partnership? This is a project that's come my way. This is how I feel about it. Let's do it. I'm committed to this for, you know, a year, two years, or whatever the options are. How do you feel about that? How did you decide to do that together? Well, I met Andrew when I was already under a five-year contract. So, you know, as you know, well, American contracts are, you know, you don't get out of them lightly, particularly if you're a woman. No. Um, yeah. And also I was very happy in the work. You know, I was doing the best television in the world at the time. So he met me when I was already that. Um, but we knew each other. Uh, we've known each other since I was 16 and he was 17. So I didn't know that. he he knew the girl from Garden Vale and, um, you know, the weird, slightly uncomfortable <laughs> in her own skin, um, audacious, bombastic nut job. Um, so <laughs> when he met me, I was kind of at my, you know, height of I just won a Golden Globe or when we reconnected. But he was not, but he also knew me from, you know, and had seen me at various art openings, you know, over our 20s. So he'd kind of seen me grow, um, told a great story. He was on a date with a girl who took him to see Muriel's wedding and he didn't know I was in it and just had this right. thing where he just kept laughing hysterically because, <laughs> you know, it was Rachel from Gardenvale, you know. Um, so it was pretty funny. Uh, so well. that decision had already been made. The second decision to do another show of five years, um, it, uh, you know, I was obviously after six feet under, I kind of had the world, you know, I had a lot of options. Um, mm. But I wanted to stay in LA. I had unexpectedly, as I said, just discovered that being on a show for five years really suited me. I grew a lot as an artist. I loved not thinking about where the next job was coming from. So, you know, when it was like Sally Field, Calista Flockhart, um, yeah. John Robbie Bates, this renowned playwright, Ken Olin, who was one of my, like, major girly crushes when I was, you know, 17 and watching 30-something, nice. hot old dement. Um, and then I met with them and um, I was able to kind of say, because you only get one chance in television, then you signed on. I was like, this is mm. what I don't want. This is what I want. I may have another child. Um, yeah. And so we're like, yep, you know, you only get that power once, you know, in, in, in our business. Um, yeah. But television has always been a place for women who are mothers who didn't want to do Broadway anymore uh, or were getting too old for film, you know, because God forbid you see our wrinkles on the big screen. Uh, <laughs> so people like Angela Lansbury were raising children while, you know, and the yeah. from Cagney and Lacey. So Hollywood has always understood, or television in Hollywood has always understood uh, what what working mothers need, and I had an executive producer uh, and a line producer were women. I had Sally Field being the most extraordinary advocate. She'd be like, Great. she'd be looking at me watching my boobs get bigger as I <laughs> needed to 
and I wouldn't want to break halfway through a scene and she'd be like, all right, stop. Rachel's boobs are getting huge. She needs to pump. And she <laughs> would give me permission to walk off a set, which felt so unbelievably wrong because, wow. you know, we can't stop production for anything. So, of course, it's expensive. You know, that, that generosity yeah. of hers was amazing. It's expensive. But she was like, and then we'd jump onto another scene and then come back when I was, you know, had lost a cup size. <laughs> yeah, isn't that lovely though? I mean, we, sh- you know, to have someone to make that place for you and make you feel that way um, at work. So, so it sounds like your experience in LA or you know the US was quite positive. Did you suffer any sort of? Did you experience any challenges over there, other than what you'd mentioned before about kind of under- being told about the industry. So it seems like you're a little bit aware of what kind of goes on over there. But did you uh, have any negative I would say the difference between television and independent film is that television has massive HR departments. They're big studios. They're, you know, Fortune 500 companies. So um, I found it a, a much more respectful um mm. Because, uh, you know, they're corporate entities and they have, you know, yeah. they, they, they have obligations, you know, to their shareholders, unlike these small independent, you know, that's where the, the, that's where the bad shit, I think, um, yeah. Fox, let's say Fox aside. Um, <laughs> so, no, that, that was another reason I, I, I like television, just um, yeah. it all felt like the power structure was, you know, much um sorry what was your question the first part of that question did you have any sort of challenging experiences in LA in the US I think the challenging experience for me was just returning to work with such young children um I went Mm. banjo with my first one I was back at work in six weeks um Adelaide was six months and um Clementine was back at work in five or six weeks for one day. Um, And that was after, you know, I had a spontaneous uterine rupture, was in a cocktail for three days. So, yeah, yeah, almost died twice. Clementine was born non-responsive. So it was an incredibly traumatic birth. Um, And as actually great as it was to go back to work, because I think I'd that was good not to overly contemplate, you know, that near-death experience. Yeah, Yeah. I just never had, like, the mother's group. I never had those normal um, support that um, is your kind of peer support, I think, that my friends had. So I missed, um, and, of course, we're not near our mothers. So the only, you know, Mm. the only help we had really was the paid help. and, uh, you know, I remember I had a nanny at the time and I was very nervous about Clementine's birth. I was, you know, a geriatric mother. I think I was like 41 Hate or how something. how they call it that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I said to my nanny who I'd had really a lot of difficulty uh, securing a nanny that understood, you know, entering my values and were kind of very creative yeah. but quite, you know, in other ways um yeah. and I said to her I said look 
the ne- I, I, I had such a quick labour with Adelaide. It was an it was an hour and a half, and I only just made it. Like I was literally in the lift with my OB, Dr. Crane, who did the Kardashians. So I knew right. it would be very, very quick. And I said to her, I said, um, in the next two weeks, because I don't know, could you just, you know, stay close by? And she said, well, what if I want to go away with my girlfriend? And I said, well, you know, it's my third labor and it's going to be really fast. So I don't know what time of day or night it's going to come. And I just really mm. appreciate that until the baby comes, you keep your phone on. And she was like, oh, well, we were going to go to Long Beach this weekend. And I just kind of, and then she kind of huffed and puffed. And I'll never forget it because I had the suitcase ready in the garage. Just, I think I just had a feeling that this was not going to go well. And I had this little mm. moment where I was like, oh, I'm in labor. And my husband jumped in the shower. And I said, we don't have time. We're leaving now. I called her. She didn't answer the phone and I had this moment where I'm like, what do we do? And Andrew's like, uh, so I, I had a friend that was like 45 minutes away. It was two in the morning. I rang my girlfriend, Fiona, who was Australian and said, Fee, can you come over? Um, I've got to, we've got to leave. We've got to leave the hospital. And, uh, Andy was like waiting. I said, we can't wait. So we left the children who are only like four and six alone in the house to drive to Cedars. I knew that, you know, Fee was on the way. Anyway, Clementine was born 42 minutes later. And, uh, you know, my nanny then turns up the next day. She's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. My phone was on silent. And then as she started to realise just that Andrew was, you know, not sure that, that I was going to make it. Anyway, I came out of that coma and <laughs> first thing I said to Andrew was like, that Bye. fucking bitch is never going to see my child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. You're fucking fired. Done. So that was the hard thing is you, uh, That's huge. you just don't have those lifelong people that you feel you know and thank god yeah, i i had support. one aussie girl who i had known uh was at, at school with her sister so i did in fact call the only person in la that i'd known my whole life so there you go so that was a tough moment that's huge just mm. craving that security i suppose and comfort and did that lead on to because i did read somewhere that you those 80 hour weeks were basically the driver decision when your kid your children were young for you to come back so it that was i can't remember when but you decided that yeah okay i've done what i need to do here and i'm ready to come back to australia was that the main reason the kids um uh, yeah like i didn't want to be under contract you know, if, mm. if, um, and what I realized with Clementine, I think, you know, if anything happened with any one of my children, I'd be in a, in a situation that only, it had a little bit of flexibility, but I couldn't do that thing that other women did at certain times where, you know what, I'm going to take six months out here. You know, this kid's really struggling with this. We're not on top of this. Um, mm. there was that lack of flexibility. So, 
you know, working 10 years have bought me the privilege of, of, uh, of treading water a bit. Um, and I wanted to, you know, I think I've, Clementine was two when I came back and I'd missed those years a bit with my, um, with my first two. Oh, lovely. So when you came back to Australia um, and now you're, you're creating work in Australia, I saw somewhere that you were, were you about to play Julia Gillard in a production? Was that something that you're going to do? I'm not sure if that's going ahead. No, um, the producer never got that up. But, you know, what, okay. what I loved about that project was, you know, just a whole lot of themes that, you know, went back to things that I've been deeply interested and curious about. Since my university days at Melbourne University, before um, I left to pursue my drama, um, yeah. so and I hadn't been able to get um, what was Black Bitch, which had an idea as the movie. So there were ideas about, you know, women in power and the kind of misogyny of the ruling class, I guess, in in Australia. Um, there was a book that you know was optioned. Um, and I think the thesis was just never kind of sexy enough. Um, and then when I pitched Black Bitch to Blackfella Films, everything that I wanted, but so much more, because suddenly you could talk about the constant um, need for women of diverse backgrounds in colour to prove their legitimacy. Um, so there was a whole extra layer that, and 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 of course it it gave us Deborah Mailman as an actor yeah. who we love, you know, and that we will yeah. walk in a much less. It allowed us to be unexpected and epic and daring and visual and 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 also do, to, to tell a regional story, which I think was really important. Is what is the price of service for men and women? who come, you know, whose electorates are basically two days travel from Canberra. Yeah, so, how great was it that you get to play? You get to play the uh, female prime minister, and I, I know. And I got to play the I, female prime minister anyway, play, yes. Yeah. And, and but know, more fun um, have, in a way that it was a fictitious fun. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm so you more, didn't have to model it on someone exactly, existed. Exactly, and I think that's, uh, I think, a lot more fun. Um, I think I already know your thoughts on Jacinta Ardern. I saw something the other day on your Instagram where you're just like, what are, what are the common things that all of these people have in handling the coronavirus and they're all female, beautiful prime ministers, yeah. which is incredible. Um, look, I, there's so much I could be talking to you about, but I need to let you go. But I have to say thank you so much, Rachel, for being so honest and forthcoming in your chat with me today and letting us know what you're working on as well. It's really exciting. Um, I'm so honoured and privileged to have you on here. And thank you. I'm going to claim you as ours, but thank you so much for being <laughs> one of ours. Um, you are absolutely gorgeous and hats off to your um, initiative. You're awesome. Um, good You're luck. awesome. Thank Stay you. Safe. And good luck with this home. Yeah, you too. And good luck with the homeschooling. And I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Rach. I'm off to practice some <laughs> <in> violin. <laughs> yeah, do it. All do right. it. Bye, hon. Bye. There you have it, folks. We are the real ones. I hope you've enjoyed my podcast and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can follow me on my Instagram at Sharon Jahal or We Are The Real Ones and sign up for updates on my website at www.sharonjahal.com. Sending love and light to you, but above all, always keeping it real.
We are the real ones.